Well, good morning. Trust you've had a good breakfast. I noticed some of you did. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> that you're going to be able to stay awake after all of that. And if you can't, then please don't snore. That would be very unfair. Uh, it's great to be back here. I probably have a longer association with this church than any of you except for Dave, <laughs> who was born here <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, but it's great to be back. Um, I don't often do this, but uh, I really felt prompted by God just to share my testimony with you. Uh, so relax and get comfortable because I'm 83. <laughs> well, there could be a lot of it, but we'll try and keep. What time do you normally aim to close? Whenever you want. <laughs> yeah. Usually it's around 10 right. Well, it's 20 past nine now, and I can see the time. <laughs> and you can't. <laughs> um, well, I was born in England, uh, just about the outbreak of the Second World War. And there are some unkind people that suggest there's a connection between the outbreak of war and my being born. Um, I deny that because people didn't know what I was going to become back then. <clears throat> it did mean that in my childhood, um, we, everything was dominated by the war. And uh, <clears throat> most men of fighting age had to go fight. <laughs> Uh, my dad didn't because he was working in the steel industry and it was deemed as a, a vital industry in the, the city where I grew up. Uh, it was actually where steel making was first uh, discovered and um, nearly all the steel and many steel products like crankshafts and brake leaves were made there and so it was vital for tanks and aircraft and everything else. And my dad left the house six mornings a week at 6 a.m. and returned at 9 p.m., six days a week. The only exception was Sunday. Uh, so I didn't see a whole lot of him. And Sunday was my unfavorite day. I was probably about three when I fell in love for the first time and that was with a game that you call soccer. And uh, <clears throat> I have an interesting chart. It's of evolution. I don't know whether you believe in evolution, but this is evolution. <laughs> and the first, you, you've got a sort of ape-like figure squatting down, and it goes on t to... Uh, more and more erect till there's a, a homo sapiens standing up there. The only th difference from what some charts look like is that this one is uh, an American football player in the scrum and this one is a, is a soccer player. <laughs> and I fell in love with a game of soccer when I was about three and um, I have practiced and practiced and practiced, played with my friends every opportunity, <clears throat> and I had a uh, what had been a bucket, and it was set up about the height of that board there, and and I would be about where Ken is sitting, relaxing there, 
and I would aim the ball to kick it, swerve it into the bucket, <coughs> spin round and hit it first time without having to look. <coughs> and uh, that was just, you know, when there's nothing else to do. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I really loved the game. And uh, <coughs> Sundays were a difficult day for me. Uh, we had a, a billiard table, a snooker table, or a pool table, you would call it, uh, in the house. We weren't allowed to use it on Sunday. I ha had uh, available lots and lots of books, but there were only half a dozen books that were allowed to read on Sunday. <coughs> and I uh, wasn't allowed to kick a ball on Sundays. Did have to go to church, though. <laughs> and uh, it was about a half mile away, and we walked to church, didn't have a car. And if we had, we wouldn't have been able to get any gas for it. <coughs> and uh, so Mother held this arm, and Dad held this one, and I always made it to church. <laughs> the building was about 900 years old which is quite old in American terms. <laughs> yeah. And uh, was, people spoke uh, rapturously about what an amazing place it was. As far as I was concerned, it was just cold and uncomfortable. <laughs> the heat was very inadequate. The, the seats were wooden bench about that wide, uh, way too high for my feet to touch the floor. The proceedings were intensely boring. <clears throat> I was the only kid in there, apart from my sister, and she was seven years older than me, so she was never a kid, really. And <clears throat> and it was excruciating. <laughs> and I couldn't wait for the service to be over, but then, I, you know, it was still Sunday, <laughs> and I wouldn't have any fun till Monday. And... Uh, as a child, I could see through the performance, and it was kind of religious ritual, but there was nobody on the other end of it. I mean, they said the same prayers every week, but they never got an answer. I mean, they'd have had a coroner if they did get one. <laughs> and and uh, all my buddies were out playing soccer in the park, and I was stuck in this place trying to draw patterns between the light bulbs and that. <laughs> uh, so um, I was seven years old when I decided, you know, there isn't really anybody on the other end of this performance. And I had a conversation with my dad and I said, hey dad, there isn't really a God, is there? It's like Santa Claus, it's a nice story, but there's nobody there. And he said, oh, no, so no, there really is a God. And I said, oh, how do you know? And he said, everybody knows. I said, no, they don't, because I don't know. <laughs> so how do you know? And he had no answer. And I decided then, age of seven, God does not exist, so why do we come to church? Well... I wasn't given an answer to that, but uh, it was still not an option. <laughs> I still went to church every week, but now I developed some techniques. <laughs> it was a stone floor, actually gravestones, <laughs> uh, with no 
mats or rugs or anything, so anything that fell on the floor was noisy. And I developed a technique of having coins in my pocket wrapped up in a handkerchief, and at the quietest, most solemn moment, I could produce a very realistic sneeze, <laughs> which would echo around the building, and then I would grab my handkerchief, and all the coins would fall out, and then I would scrabble down trying to get them all. And when that was done, I had the hymn book on a ledge, and it always seemed to fall off, and it always felt flat, not on its spine, because flat made much more noise. <laughs> and uh, my parents began to wonder, was there some other way of dealing with this? <clears throat> so they sent me to Sunday school, and uh, that didn't last very long. <laughs> I got kicked out. I had a painful interview with my dad, at least on my end. <laughs> and uh, then he found a Bible class which probably was Christian, uh, but it did, had no no chance really. And the teacher in the Bible class used to illustrate with a big blackboard, but the blackboard was on an easel with pegs in it to hold the board on, and he would turn his back on the class and write on the board. And the third week I went there, I took with me some fishing line, and I got there early, and I tied it to the held the board up. And when he turned his back on the class and started writing on the board, I pulled the pegs out, and it came down across his toes, and he was literally hopping mad. <laughs> and uh, uh, he didn't uh, take too long to decide the source of the problem, and uh, I beat him to the door. So <laughs> as I was running down the street, he, he gave me to understand he didn't want me back in the class anymore, which was fine. I didn't want to be there, but I needed somehow to deal with my parents. And uh, I waited for a, an opportunity when Dad was in a good mood to tell him I'd been kicked out of the Bible class. But there didn't appear to be one that week, and uh, I forgot about it, to be honest. And then the next Sunday came round, and he said, uh, you'll be off to Bible class then. And I said, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and he said, don't forget your collection. He gave me a coin to put in the collection, so of course I took it. <laughs> and uh, I didn't go to the Bible class. I went down to the park and played soccer. And I thought it wasn't a good idea to go back with the coins still in my pocket, so I bought an ice cream. <laughs> Went home, and my dad said, well, how's Bible class? And I said, oh, beginning to like it, actually. <laughs> and that continued for a year. <laughs> when one Sunday afternoon, it was unusually nice weather for our country, and my dad took his Sunday afternoon cigar out for a stroll in the park, and stopped to watch the game and thought he recognized one of the players. <laughs> uh, sad thing is I didn't see him because I was engrossed in the game. So we had another painful interview. Um, <laughs> but that was the end of religion for me. <clears throat> and uh, it's one thing to decide what you're not going to do. It's another thing to decide what you are going to do. And I was interested in science, 
and I thought science was really practical. It helped people, and people benefited from it, whereas religion just took money off people to build big, fancy buildings and left the people poorer than they were to begin with. <coughs> so the answer was obviously science, not only did it help people, but it also made money and you could get to be famous. So that's what I was planning on. <coughs> and uh, when I was 17, I had uh, one wonderful invitation that was to uh, sign professional terms with a first division uh, soccer team. And uh, I was really excited about that, came home full of the good news. My dad liked soccer, but he didn't think it was a good career. And uh, in those days, sportsmen were not paid vast sums of money. And of course, you could get injured early on and that would be the end of your career. And so he said, no, don't, you're not going to do that. And I needed his signature because I was not going to be old enough to sign myself till I was 21. <coughs> so he said, go to university, get yourself a degree, and then you can play if you want. <coughs> so I went to university to study science. And uh, in the very first week, there was an open lecture to the entire university given by an extremely famous scientist. The atom was first split in Cambridge by two men called Cockcroft and Walton, and Sir John Cockcroft was giving this open lecture, and he did not envisage an atom bomb. And when that happened, and pictures were released of Japan, <coughs> uh, he was broken. You know, my life's work and all the diligence and study and effort and money has gone into this, and this is what it does. <coughs> and this was the gist of his talk to the university, and it planted a seed in my mind that, you know, is science really the answer to man's needs? Or does it need a moral compass? And if it does, where do you get it? <clears throat> so that was sown in my very first year at university. And incidentally, uh, I was studying and the up-and-coming subject then, the money was being poured into and all kinds of research was plastics. And I was going to go into that. That is my... I'm, the world is going to benefit from my discovering new plastics. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I set off about that. And then uh, we were on vacation as a family on the west coast of England. <coughs> and there was a spectacular sunset. And my sister, being of a more romantic nature than I am, said... Uh, look at the sun going down, isn't it beautiful? And I said, don't be stupid. The sun does not go down. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> it is, of course, the earth that's turning away and it looks as though the sun's going down. And I got back into my room thinking, <laughs> I shut her up for the evening. <laughs> 
uh, when I was just kind of thinking that over, and then I thought, so it's the earth that turns away. While it's turned away, you can't see the sun, you can't feel its warmth. If you had a very short lifespan, and you're only alive during that time when the earth is turned away, you wouldn't even know the sun was there. Can't see it, can't feel it. Then I had this really daft idea. That's what I'd done with God, intellectually. Now I'd turn my back, no God out there. <coughs> if I'd turn around, he was there all the time. <coughs> I thought that was such a daft idea, I laughed at myself for thinking it. But laughing didn't shift it. And over the next three months, it in inten intensified. This is true. And I don't even know how I know it's true. But if God's real, I'm in trouble. Because <laughs> he's certainly not impressed with my performance so far. <laughs> and if it comes to a showdown, I don't think I'll win. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know anybody that had the answers I needed. <clears throat> but, of course, we had Bibles in the house. We were English. Of course we had Bibles. Nobody read them. Only fanatics read the Bible. I had about five in the house. I found the least noticeable one, took it up to my room, kept it hidden, because I didn't want anybody to know I was getting interested in religion. <clears throat> but over the next three months, I read the New Testament right Almost to the end, the second time through, I came across First Peter, talking about Jesus, and it says, He, his own self, bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And that's where the whole gospel crystallized for me. And uh, I realized that God really was not impressed with the way I've been living, but he loved me in spite of all that and the cross was all about me and giving him the right to forgive me uh, legally. So uh, it was fantastic and I, I uh, said out loud, well, it's amazing, thank you, because I've been in church. <laughs> and I didn't expect an answer, but I got one. He flooded me with what you and I now know to be the peace of God that passes all understanding. And this overwhelming sense of peace just enveloped me. And uh, that has always been there since then. And disobedient. And that's how I know I've been disobedient, because I lose the peace. And when I'm looking for his guidance in a particular decision, that's what I always go to. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God rule in your heart. And the word rule there means be the referee. Blow the whistle. This is right, this is not. <coughs> um, so I was still uh, in the university. The church my parents went to, average age about 110, <laughs> and uh, I was the only kid in there, and the, the uh, guys who did the preaching 
wore robes and all the rest of it, and, but they, they couldn't hold attention for more than about two minutes, and, <laughs> and uh, it was nonsense. But I joined another church at the university, because I thought I should do that, and it was a much bigger church, different denomination, uh, a lot of young people, a lot of students there, but I never really heard the gospel then. And uh, <clears throat> I was also, uh, from my very first year, play, playing soccer for the university, uh, which meant every second weekend we were in some other city. <clears throat> it was pretty busy because uh, there were a lot of lectures, a lot of work in the labs, and there were projects to be done. And, one thing and the other and the occasional party and girlfriend then seemed to be you know all that much time and uh, after a while I, I more or less dropped out of church <coughs> and then at the conclusion of my time at university I got this amazing letter from the queen and uh, she wanted me in the army see and <laughs> I, I didn't know she even knew about me <laughs> But uh, it seemed important to not ignore this letter. <laughs> so I found myself in the army and, uh, uh, and joining in all the activities. In the, and this is the British Army, so I'm sure yours is much better than ours. But uh, I decided after two days that the <clears throat> phrase military intelligence is an oxymoron. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> there is no connection between those two words. And uh, my time there was pretty miserable, except I uh, <clears throat> two things. One is, for six months they trained me to be a radio technician and to jump out of planes and parachute with the theory that they could dropped me off somewhere behind enemy lines and I could <coughs> build a radio set out of fruit cans <laughs> and, uh, and uh, send information back home. <coughs> and the other thing was soccer. <laughs> and that gave me an identity in the army because I was a reasonably good soccer player and I played my highest level in the so after I'd finished the six months training, I got posted to North Africa. And uh, <clears throat> this was not all that long after the end of the Second World War. I mean, it was after it, but not all that long after it. And Britain still had bases all over the Middle East. And uh, some of them they kept particularly for desert training because we don't have any deserts in, in England. <clears throat> and uh, so uh, there was a, a team made up of servicemen throughout the Middle East. And that was about 45 military bases, Army, Navy, and Air Force. And, and it was a pretty good team because the draft was still on. And we played against some of the national teams. Uh, particularly Cyprus and Egypt and a few of those places. <coughs> and so I got to uh, uh, fly in, play soccer and fly out again 
never actually saw the city, just the football pitch, and that was it. <coughs> um, but that was the highest level, and it, it gave me an identity and an in to some of the guys, which uh, <coughs> I will now show you was pretty important. Uh, in Britain, there's a mission that just works within the military, and they have a special relationship with the military, and they, these missioners are allowed to have a base inside the camp and uh, have their family there and invite them in there. And uh, when I was just in my second week in the army and uh, not relishing sharing a room with 25 other guys, uh, not really liking the bed they gave me, uh, definitely not liking the uniform they gave me to wear, <coughs> and uh, not enjoying the program much and getting sworn out by, you know, people who apparently had authority over me but didn't have the intelligence to carry it out. Uh, <coughs> when this guy came into the room and began to talk about Jesus, and he was the first person I'd ever heard actually make sense talking about Jesus, and I knew he was uh, spelling out what had really happened to me. And he gave an invitation. Friday night, every week we have a meeting in my home, starts 7 o'clock. Uh, you are entitled to come there. And my wife will have homemade apple pie, and uh, we will have an hour's meeting in which we'll explain the gospel. And I went along on the very first opportunity. There were about 40 guys there. He preached the gospel, and again, right on, I knew exactly what he was saying. He gave a gospel invitation. Three other guys got saved. The first time I saw anybody else get saved. And actually, people got saved every week. And I thought this was normal for a real church. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit of a shock to the system when I found there were evangelical churches where two people a year got saved or something. <laughs> and um, I really enjoyed that. And I began to share my own story with some of the guys on the base. And then this man took me under his wing and he would take me with him when he went to the military hospital and spoke to the guys in the hospital and there were no serious illnesses there were things like cartilage operations and stuff and these guys were lying in bed for two or three days and bored out of their minds and and he had a way of engaging them in conversation and and everybody was glad to see him and he took me with him to do that <coughs> and then um my six months training was getting toward an end and I didn't know where I would be sent and there were a lot of different options. <coughs> and some of my Christian friends that I now had prayed, God, send Ken somewhere where you really want him. And I was daft enough to join in this prayer, see. And, and then my posting came through, I was going to Libya. 
I didn't know where it was. I had to get a map out and find out. <coughs> and uh, so most of it was Sahara Desert, which didn't sound all that attractive, really. <coughs> and uh, I left the base and I went to a, a transit camp awaiting a flight to North Africa because there weren't very many. Um, <coughs> and I waited three weeks there and I found a Christian group and they were talking about a place called Capenray, which sounded, uh, the way they were talking about it, it sounded exciting, but it was a weird name and it kind of stuck in my mind. And then I went to North Africa and my friends had written to me and the letters arrived before I did. And they put things on the envelopes like, Jesus saves, prepare to meet your God, things like this. And these arrived in a small military camp in the middle of the desert. <laughs> and uh, word spread around the camp of this religious fanatic coming. <laughs> so they um, made a pact among themselves that nobody would talk to me about anything. They wouldn't speak to me except if I, they had to give me an instruction. That was it. And I left England a day pretty much like today, not quite as sunny, but about these temperatures, middle 70s in the afternoon. <coughs> Landed in Benghazi, it was 128. <laughs> Sun blasting down, reflecting off everything I couldn't see. I needed sunglasses, I'd never owned any, I lived in England. <laughs> and there was a man there, and he was a squadron driver, his name was Evan. And Evan had a very disturbed background. He'd been kicked out of 16 foster homes. And his uh, favorite day was Friday, because it was payday. <coughs> Friday evening, he'd go downtown, get a little bit drunk, find himself a cheap Arab woman, spend a couple of hours with her, get very drunk, and come back to the base, <coughs> where he would have a fight with the military police. <coughs> and after a while, he, he was six feet four, after a while they would overcome him and throw him in the prison. <laughs> and if it had been anywhere else, he'd have stayed there for a month or two, but it, life was so boring there that the military police looked forward to Friday nights. This was their entertainment. So, so they, they let him out Saturday morning. <laughs> and uh, I stepped off the plane in this dazzling sunlight, reeling from the heat, and there was this big black shadow. And it said, do you need him? And I said, yeah. Don't preach at me. I wasn't going to. <laughs> I was just looking for the terminal. Seven. <laughs> he drove me back to the unit, didn't say another word. Got back in the unit, and again I was sharing a room with the 24 guys. <laughs> and Evan's bed was at one end, mine was at the opposite, and on the opposite side. <coughs> and... Uh, there were mosquitoes there, and I'd never experienced mosquitoes. And I saw that I had a mosquito net, and I saw everybody else, theirs put up, so I put mine up. What nobody told me was that if you have your skin against the inside of the net, you get bitten. 
and my feet were against the net. And uh, I didn't know. The next morning, I had 38 mosquito bites on my feet and had to wear boots and march up and down and play soldiers. <laughs> and that was the beginning of a really in my life. And uh, I was, he put me in the wrong place. I'm, I don't belong here, man. This, this is not my scene. <clears throat> and that continued for two weeks, and I, I hadn't known one friendly word in two weeks. When I got a special gift, it's a disease called dysentery. <clears throat> and it means that um, there are a series of internal explosions, <laughs> and everything that's not actually nailed down to your spine comes out one end or the other. <laughs> yeah. And the army decided I was ill. <laughs> yeah. And I was sent to hospital, and uh, I stayed in hospital two weeks. And I got letters every day. I was the only person, including all the officers, the only person who got letters every day. And there were weird things on the envelopes, like <laughs> Jesus says, you know. And Evan had to bring them to me. And every morning I would hear his boots stomp down the corridor and into the ward, where he would stop by my bed, throw the mail in my face, turn around and stomp out again. Never spoke. After two weeks, the army decided I was better. <laughs> I didn't think I was, but they said... <laughs> And Evan came to take me back to the unit. And he was driving along, rage in his face, steam coming out of his ears, didn't speak. Uh, halfway to the base, I thought, I really had it with this. And I said, hey, are you a brave man? He said, why, do you want to fight? <laughs> no, I just, I'm curious to know whether you're brave, because I don't think you are. I'm brave enough for anything. What do you got in mind? Oh, I don't think you're brave enough to come to a meeting. One of your meetings? Oh, yeah. Not come into one of those. See, I told you, you're not brave enough. <laughs> Brave's got nothing to do with it. What would I want to come to one of your meetings for? Oh, you could come and laugh. And I'm coming. You. Well, since Evan was coming to a meeting, I thought we'd better have one. <laughs> I never had one before <laughs> but I've been to those back in, in, in England and uh, uh, so I had an idea what to do and went right round the unit and I said we're having a, a meeting Wednesday night and Evan's coming everybody knew Evan <laughs> we had a great turnout <laughs> yeah, two thirds of the guys who were off duty were there and I stood up to open the meeting, and Evan stood up to open the meeting, and he had a much louder voice than I had. And he told a particularly disgusting joke, followed it up with two more, progressively worse. Couldn't think of a fourth joke, so he just poured out a stream of obscenity until he thought of another joke and told that one. And I'm trying to open in prayer. <laughs> And the guys are just rolling around laughing. <coughs> Funniest thing they'd ever seen. And this continued for 45 minutes until I quit. 
and I walked out of there the most defeated person on the planet, telling God, you have put me in the wrong place. Get me out of here. A uh, few minutes after the meeting ended, <laughs> a guy came over to me, his name was Ernie, and he said, I need to talk to you. And I said, really? <laughs> he said, yeah, he said, I need to be a Christian. <laughs> I said, you're kidding, because I was thinking of quitting. <laughs> really? <laughs> and he said, yeah, I was in that meeting, if you want to call it that, and I was laughing and laughing until I had a horrible thought. One day I would have to be either like you or like him. And I don't have much choice. I need to be a Christian. So I spelled out the Christian message a bit more fully. Then he turned his life over to Christ. We went to bed. About an hour later, I was just falling asleep. Nevin came in, roaring drunk. He paused my, my bed and threw up all over my bed. And full of evangelical love, I leapt out of bed and punched him as I was going. <laughs> and knocked him out. <laughs> I see, this is great evangelistic technique. <laughs> and I took hold of his foot and I dragged him down the length of the room to his bed, took the clean sheets off his bed and brought it over to mine, took the decorated ones off mine, <laughs> took them over, it was his property after all, he might as well have it, <clears throat> and put it there and picked him up and put him on it and went to bed myself. <laughs> Next morning, Evan looked down at me and he said, they tell me you knocked me out last night. And I said, yeah. <laughs> he said, man, you must have something. It takes the military police 20 minutes and there's six of them. <laughs> I'd better be a Christian. And he turned his life over to Christ. One after another, 27 guys in that unit came to the Lord. I went out on the streets offering English classes because uh, Arabic was the national language and I couldn't speak that. And uh, there were a few young businessmen who wanted to learn English so they could further their careers. And six of them, uh, as individuals, I taught English. Uh, but I have no Arabic, and they have no English, but I got hold of an interlinear Arabic-English Bible. And uh, so we would do a line in English, line in Arabic, would match up the words, and two of those guys became believers. Both of them had to leave town because their families tried to kill them. Never heard from them again. I used to go downtown with some Arabic New Testaments and leave them at strategic places. And there was a really a small area of town where the military was allowed, the rest of the town we were not supposed to go in. But that was where I wanted to leave the... Uh, so I had a habit of doing this. And then one day as I was going along, I realized there was a group of young guys behind me, and this was a dirt road, as most of them were. <coughs> and they didn't look very pleasant, and I didn't think they wanted me to preach to them. 
So I walked the opposite direction, and they were following, and I got a bit faster, and they got a bit faster. And I thought, this is looking dangerous, and I started to run. Happily was very fit in those days. <coughs> a couple of stones flew over my head, and I accelerated, and I thought, I'm not going to be able to keep this up too long. And they were following, <coughs> and uh, suddenly I came to an intersection, and the British Army Land Rover stopped. And there was a new driver who was completely lost, <laughs> and he was way off limits. And I saw him there, he was about to ask directions, and I opened his door, shoved him out the seat, <laughs> and into the passenger seat, grabbed the wheel, and got out of there. <coughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, it's not really a technique I would recommend, but um, <laughs> anyway. <coughs> Life has been interesting. I, I want to tell you a little bit more. Um, uh, at the end of the Second World War, there was a man called Ian Thomas. He was a major in the British Army. And he was stationed in Germany after the surrender. <coughs> and he was in charge of finding accommodation for British and American people who were going to be billeted in the, that part of Germany. <coughs> and he wrote a letter, and I saw the letter recently. He wrote a letter to his wife in England in which he said, God loves Germans and we're going to love them. And that's kind of unthinkable in, when you're in the military because what they teach you is to hate the enemy. You know, they teach you to <coughs> ram them with <laughs> all kinds of weaponry and, uh, <coughs> and they enjoy doing it. <laughs> yeah. But he wrote this home to his wife and soon afterwards uh, he saw that there was a small castle up for sale with 200 acres of ground in a very beautiful area and uh, it was going to be auctioned and he wrote to his wife again said go to the auction bid up to such and such a figure and see if you can get it <clears throat> because he had been converted as a 12 year old in a christian camp and what he wanted was a permanent camp where teenagers could come have a great vacation and learn about christ <clears throat> so his wife went to the auction and the bidding got up to the figure he had set the ceiling and somebody bid over that and she just bid over it again <laughs> and she got it <laughs> and uh, that was the cape and ray that I'd heard about when I was in the transit camp and uh, <clears throat> it hadn't meant all that much to me at the time but the kids who were talking about were excited about the Lord so I saw that there was a course there, a six-month residential Bible course. <coughs> and uh, the really significant thing for me was the date. I was due to get out of the army October the 23rd, which was just too late for all the degree courses. And by that time, God had told me he wanted me in Christian work, and not in radio and not in chemistry. And I kind of reluctantly agreed because I couldn't envisage what it was going to be like. 
<coughs> and uh, so I was going to have to wait a year before any of these university courses opened. And my release date was the 23rd of October. Cape Mary Bible School started the 25th of October. <coughs> and so I wrote a letter, because I didn't really know much about it. Wrote to the principal and said, hey, I've, uh, I've heard a bit about you. I, I did a local preacher, lay preacher's course for a certain denomination and they didn't believe in miracles, they didn't believe in judgment, and they talked so much nonsense. And I hated every stage of the course, but I decided to finish it so I could tell them what I really thought about it, and I did. And uh, so I said, I'm never going to study anything, <coughs> anything like that again. What do you teach? <coughs> so it wasn't a particularly polite letter, but I got a really gracious letter back from and You're very late making your inquiries, <coughs> but there is still a place. However, students coming here are required to do some studies before they come, and uh, normally this is part of the course and it has to be paid for. <coughs> I'm just sending it to you and you can study this and decide on this basis whether it's what you want to do or not. And uh, <coughs> so I uh, studied that and it was great. You know, I'd answered lots of questions I had and <coughs> so I went to school and for six months heard some great Bible teachers and uh, I saw Ian Thomas <coughs> and his family, which included four adopted, they had been teenagers when they were adopted, two Germans and two Austrians. <coughs> and they were thriving. Yeah, and they all went into Christian work with my colleagues later on. <coughs> so God loves Germans. Love your enemy, right? <laughs> And uh, it may make you very unpopular with the people you think are your friends. <laughs> but, uh, but you walk with the Lord, do what he says. <clears throat> I'll finish with this. Um, that I used to um, <clears throat> visit public schools in England uh, as... Uh, as a teacher, because uh, every, in those days, it's still more or less the same, every kid in an English school has to have one lesson a week in some kind of moral instruction. And it used to be overtly Christian in most cases. But schools are always under pressure for funding and uh, they don't want to pay for a special teacher to teach this topic. And so all the teachers had to do one or two sessions a week and they didn't really want to do it. <coughs> and Cape Mary offered me as a guest teacher for free for a week. And very few schools turned it down. And there would be a 10 minute assembly every morning with the whole school 
and then there would be classes all day in different age groups <coughs> and different ability levels and I could fill the whole week and I would make available a half hour at lunchtime if you've got questions from the class come along here we'll talk about it some more uh, you couldn't really lead people to Christ in the classroom but and I would aim to leave the school with a Christian group hopefully with a Christian teacher who would lead them and then bring the kids to camp in the summer. And, and I did that for a number of years, and it was uh, very rewarding indeed until things took off and uh, I was teaching in the Bible school, never less than 20 nations in the Bible school. And uh, they, many of them wanted recordings so they could listen a second time, particularly if English was not their first language. And they began sending their tapes home or copies of their tapes and people in all kinds of weird places like Redwood City were, <laughs> were right in and say, hey, why don't you come here and teach that? Why don't you come here and teach anything but that? We've got that. <laughs> and uh, So eventually that took off and I left the school in 91. And I've been traveling internationally since 91. <clears throat> around the world a few times and all that and uh, God has financed it all I've never charged for anything and never asked for anything and uh, all needs have been met for myself and my family and all the travel tickets and all that stuff so thank you God bless you. when did you start trans mission uh, 91 oh so it started yeah. then yeah yeah, and the idea, well, I'd been a radio technician, so transmission is spreading a message, but the word is split, transmission. And what I saw was, um, often on the mission field, conflict between missionaries from different churches, you know, which was confusing for the locals, and they didn't need to know. What's the difference between a Methodist and a Baptist and a Pentecostal? And uh, so I really tried to encourage missions to cooperate uh, and present the gospel on a united front and then people could join whatever church they wanted and then they could get into their particular denominational stuff. And particularly, uh, I remember in Papua New Guinea one time, uh, we had a conference uh, just for mission leaders or second in command and there were 55 people there 52 men and 3 women and uh, <coughs> we agreed that we wouldn't compete if any organization was having a particular event like an evangelistic campaign all the others would not compete and organize anything special at the same time and they would encourage their own people to go there <coughs> and uh, uh, Wycliffe Bible translators were the only people with internet and it was very expensive uh, no it was missionary aviation fellowship sorry uh, they were the only people with internet and it was very expensive to get it there, and they made their internet available to all the missions 
in the country. And they agreed to have one meeting a week, uh, one meeting a year when uh, all the leaders would get together and discuss strategy, etc. <coughs> and uh, Wycliffe did agree on something, I've forgotten what now. But uh, anyway, uh, the idea of transmission means across the missions and uh, that we re really all just got one mission, that's Jesus. Well, God always knows what he's doing. Let me just toss in another story. I forgot this one. Um, but I mentioned uh, Ian Thomas adopting Germans and Austrians. Uh, one of them, uh, after high school, went to Canada and became a racing driver. But he was also um, a world-class ski skier. And uh, one is um, <clears throat> went to Austria and he began a small youth work in a small town called Schladming. And he got a little youth group together, all boys, and there were 15 or 16 of them. <clears throat> when he was invited to preach in the inner. And he went there, and uh, there was an old lady amongst all students, and she was taking interest in what he was saying. At the end of the talk, she came to him and she said, Peter, I own a castle. Uh, I'm not using it, and God has told me to come and tell you that I own a castle. Doesn't make any sense. And Peter said, well, we have a place where we could bring the youth group for some and get them away from all our other involvements and really concentrate on the word for coming. And uh, <clears throat> that's all I can tell you at the moment. She said, well, that all registers with me uh, you can have castle for one U.S. dollar a year. It's a 13th century castle. And when uh, <clears throat> they moved in and started renovating, it needed a lot of work. Uh, but they do everything themselves. And as they were doing that, she saw what they were doing. She got all the antiques out of storage and put them back in the castle. And... Uh, but Peter had to leave Schladming to go and take to work. And uh, it was a three-hour drive away, probably. <coughs> Unknown to him, totally, Gernot in Canada remembered a girl he'd known in high school, started corresponding with her, and came back to Schladming the day Peter left. And he found this little group of boys and uh, soon they were meeting with him and the group was growing and he taught them skiing as well as anything else. <coughs> I'm not sure how long afterwards now, but sometime afterwards, boys from that group took the first five places 
in the National Junior Downhill Skiing Championship. And it was such a sensa sensation, because it was on TV. <coughs> and uh, there were two that met every Friday night to pray, and had done for 30 years. And they were originally from Schladming, were praying that God would do something for the youth of that town. And they knew nothing about it till they saw the TV program. And these five kids all gave a short testimony. And, you know. <laughs> uh, then Schladming became one of the world-class ski centers. And, and it's used for the World Downhill Ski Championships. And uh, the ski lift stops, or starts, right by the garden fence uh, of the, the, the property that w they were given. It had been a YMCA property, the YMCA couldn't use it, and they couldn't sell it because of the terms in which it given to them. So they gave it to Cape Marie. So they had a ski center and a 13th century castle and I could tell this story in schools, in geography classes, and they wouldn't let me do the other classes. It was geography, right? <laughs> and I had slides of pictures and, and all this kind of thing. I showed them all over England and Scotland and Denmark and Norway and 